Welcome to Cat's Cradle, a haunted place where Kirsten isn't here because she's dead. Ooh. This week, She'll get better, though. we're doing our... Nick! Nick, I'm trying <laughs> to do an intro. We can't make the people think that Kirsten died. That's not nice. I was going to tell them the truth when I was done. Look, I'm just saying, even though it's Halloween, we don't need to be giving people heart attacks. That's for, you know, like... That's true. That's for the skeleton armies that are coming for you. That are coming for you. Welcome to our Halloween spooktacular. We did it. We got there. (laughs) That's as good an intro (laughs) as we're going to (laughs) get. Listener, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine a world in which that was the best of three attempts. (laughs) Close your eyes and imagine... The song Cop Knife. (laughs) Well, so anyway, it's the Halloween Spooktacular. We're going to talk about spooky things. (laughs) We are going to talk about spooky things today, or at the very least, we're going to talk about monster design. Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, I think the general vision for Heroic Chord, and even sort of symphonies in particular, is very cozy. And very friendly and teamworky. I am a fucking horror writer in my heart, and I always have been, and I always will be, and I cannot shake these things. Yeah, Kat wants to write Breath of the Wild, but she keeps writing Majora's Mask. <laughs> Which is honestly not so bad a place to be. No, it's not. It's a good game. <laughs> I just made the exact sound of fucking Woody Woodpecker. Yeah, a little bit. Oh, God. Haunted by Woody Woodpecker. Look, Woody Woodpecker made bank laughing like that for a living, okay? This is true. That's a science fact. So, definitely everything I do, horror happens in it. I can't help that. I can't help it. And I love monsters. I love monster design. Some of my favorite games are the Silent Hill franchise, which I have for the first time today, referred to by its name and not as Silly Hill, despite a long conversation on the subject earlier. We're all impressed by how professional you are right now, Kat. I thank you. Thank you for that. I try my best and it feels good to have that effort recognized. We look like professionals to you? (laughs) Christ. Oh, I earned that one. Oh, that was good, though. I have to reluctantly give it to you on that one. I'm just playing to the crowd. I know you like Vincent. This is true. He's my favorite (laughs) Silent Hill character because he's an asshole. Okay, where do we start? Do we start with the monsters as they are? Do we start with kind of like our favorite monsters? Let's start with some of the monsters that you took inspiration from for the horrors. What were you thinking of when you think of the horrors of a Miltic? Is this your Silent Hill coming through? Are these like, you know, Freddy Krueger style things? Or are you just, you know, like... Throwing darts at a dartboard. Uh, first of all, I'm always throwing darts at a dartboard because I um, am a darts champion, and that's just what I do to pass the time. You're very Scottish of you. It's not part of my decision-making process. It's just kind of an involuntary thing that my hand does when I'm not paying attention to it. It is very Silent Hill in that they're very much just like blobbed-up metaphors for things. The horror is on the whole, are very much trauma spirits. Yeah. And, like, specifically the traumas of war, which is why the horror that you guys fought broadside is 
meant to be a representation of ship to ship combat. Mm-hmm. It has an ability that it didn't get to use because you guys took its scatter, uh, where it screams and there is splinters flying everywhere, and the environment just gets shredded and you guys get shrapneled. It still shot me a lot. It did shoot you a lot, hey? It shot you a whole bunch. Oopsie. Well, I'm really glad that I had the right idea when I used that weird modulated sample to scream for it, too, then. Yeah, that was absolutely the right idea. Your sound design on Broadside was dope. Speaking of dope sound design, you guys also fought the Blades, which were kind of meant to be a representation of ambush combat. Oh, okay. They're very gorilla. They're very like strike and then specifically disappearing and then swooping again. I also got really beat up by them. Huh, funny. Cobb is, um... <laughs> Cobb's the party tank, I guess. I don't know if he's good at fighting, but he does it a lot. He certainly does it a lot. That's Cobb for you. Yeah. So the horrors that are in the book, like they have names like Siege and uh, Broadside is in the manual as well. And so I wouldn't say those like take inspiration from media place as much as they take inspiration from a very literal place. These are spirits left behind by the horrors of war. So they're meant to be evocative of war. Siege has an ability that causes people to become isolated, which means they can't accept help from people, you know, like a siege does. Mm. I guess the one question that I have then that maybe the listeners would like to know is, are all of the horrors specifically war-related? That's a good question. I haven't designed any that aren't, but it's not to say that they couldn't exist. Because I was wondering, so, because the horrors and the demons are very different entities. The demons mm. are, so I should say, from what I've experienced of the horrors playing through the game and from the way that they're described, they are unthinking is probably a, a good way to put yeah. it. They don't seem to be yep. sentient in the same way that obviously the noble demons are very intelligent, you know, of human level or greater. Yep. The lesser demons depends. That's exactly right. Yeah. Like some of the lesser demons are maybe not smart, but clever. I'm sorry. I've just realized that the visual inspiration for the horrors was almost certainly Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> Because I can picture every horror I've ever designed in that game's blocky-ass combat engine. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Hell House coming soon to a... Uh... <laughs> I don't know. Something about the monster designs in Final Fantasy VII is... It really, really stuck with me. Final Fantasy VII is all about that weird mashup of technology and outgrowings of the natural world and, like, sentience in places where there shouldn't be sentience. Yeah. And I think, like, the um, the kind of primitive nature of the combat engine was, like, advanced enough to portray a sense of malice and aggression, but not really advanced enough to portray, like, real thought, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's something kind of robotic about just, I mean, it's a game from the 90s. Mm -hmm. So the horrors are the weapons, then? I mean, there's also that horrible snake that you fight in the arena a lot. That does the aqualung and makes you die a bunch. Mm. There's all kinds of extremely messed up enemies in that game. <laughs> like, it's not just the weapons. A lot of them are deeply messed up and they're still kind of malicious without ne necessarily being, like, thinking. Which I dig. 
Like Hell House. Like Hell House. You guys are going to fight a Hell House. I hope so. <laughs> I sort of hope so. Yeah. The intelligence level does vary a lot because I think that that's kind of key to what kind of stories you're telling. I've been reading a lot lately about decolonizing D&D and TTRPGs and the ways in which colonial mindset plays into the kinds of stories we decide to tell. And I mean, I'm definitely not the person to use as a primary resource on this conversation for lots of reasons, but um, most recent episode of Behold Her has some amazing interviews on the subject if you're interested in uh, going into that further. But, and one of them is just this notion of how sentient are your opponents? What is it that your opponents want? Are your opponents evil just by dint of being evil? And you tell different kinds of stories based on the capacity for motivation of your opponent and the capacity for compassion, both of your opponent and of your players. So I wanted to have at least one enemy that was just an evil spirit, something that you could tell stories about combating and fighting without players feeling as if they're being pressed into these colonial roles of conquerors. Well, and let's talk about that a little bit more, because I remember watching one of the playtests that you live streamed where your players encountered a horror and <laughs> they chose to overscatter it rather than like actually fight it. So you've still got a little bit of some other options involved in how you are approaching horrors. I thought that was beautiful of them, by the way. Everything that they did in that stream was so, so wholesome. <laughs> because they also adopted the automaton. Oh yeah, that's right. They adopted the goat, they adopted the gun, and then they therapied the ghost. And that, mm -hmm. was, that was kind of their problem solving, and it was beautiful and very pure and wholesome. But if we're talking thematically about the horrors, one of the big, I think, touchstones of Heroic Chords setting as I understand it is about effectively rebuilding after the contradictions inherent in an old society had caused it to collapse. That a horror is an evil spirit, but a horror is also a consequence of the previous order. Yeah. A horror is sort of history coming back to bite you. That's exactly, I think, what I had in mind with them, that horrors were remnants of the mistakes of the past. And just like kind of in our world, the mistakes of the past have lasting consequences that need to be addressed. Even if that past no longer exists, I don't think there is war in Amilta. I think people struggle with each other, but I think the scars of the last war are too deep for them to go into full-scale combat for the kind of foreseeable future, but there are still horrors. And even then, there is kind of a war being fought against the horrors in the Bright Wastes, which is... Which is where the climax of season one of Sword of Symphonies is going to take place, unless I am completely misreading every single symbol signal to that effect that you have ever given <laughs> that's, me. That's absolutely where I'm sending you guys, yes. That's absolutely where we're going with that. And so then... So we've got one enemy that kind of exists to be fought in one way or another. We've got an enemy that you need to get rid of, either by purifying it or by defeating it. 
we have noble daemons who I think a lot of the inspiration for those came from like ghost stories. I've always loved ghost stories. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be a ghost hunter. <laughs> so I've read countless, countless books on the subject. I tried ghost hunting once. Yeah, same. It didn't work. <laughs> One of these days you'll have to ask Kirsten about how ghost hunting went for us. Probably very similar to the way it went for me, which is we drove around a lot, found nothing, and then went home. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Our story is worse. But <laughs> not on my scout. I was just sitting there being a good girl. So that's neither here nor there. But um, I, I love how ghosts and ghost stories are there, but they're not there. And they have these obsessions, like these deep obsessions that... Like you can't just talk to a ghost. You have to like you have to find it what it wants. In all the best ghost stories, it wants something. Plus, I just love classical demonology. Really? <laughs> yeah, you never would have guessed, huh? Never would have guessed. <laughs> never would have guessed. But if we're gonna go on that direction, I am going to prompt you by saying, yeah, there's also a touch of classical demonology and demon summoning texts where you have to engage with very specific legalistic language or even the fey as a concept where you have these powerful alien beings that aren't necessarily outwardly malicious immediately but they do have very particular rules that it is the protagonist's job to figure out and deal with or else uh real bad consequences can happen you know, I hadn't thought of the Fae connection, but I think you're absolutely right. I think every folklore has these powerful, elusive entities that are not quite deities, but what's in a name? And, uh, yeah, the Fae kind of also fit into that demon mold as well. It just, I find so, so irresistible. That's why I have a game about them. And that's also why in Truth Hidden Among Hearts, I play a demon summoner because I love that. (laughs) It's my favorite thingy. It's my favorite thing. You and Rido. Yeah. Yeah. So actually a question that I had about noble demons is I am well aware how we have or maybe how I have reacted to the noble demons we've encountered in Sword of Symphonies. I, um, because I guess it's the type of story that I want to tell, I have treated the noble demons really, really seriously. I have found them intimidating and like recording those episodes have been exhausting, even if I've liked how they've come out every single time. You have mentioned that. And I'm curious how that's gone in some of your other games where you've encountered noble demons, because I can imagine that you don't have to be like, your character is just absolutely intimidated the whole time. I think it does largely vary from person to person because we only had one noble demon contact in my other campaign and she was severely wounded. So it was kind of, uh, the party could feel a little bit more confident about dealing with her, though she was still very dangerous because she was clearly not omnipotent. But that being said, I think Kirsten kind of took the lead on that one because she's playing an arcanist and approached it with uh, like confidence but a great deal of caution. The problem is that um, Nick hates all power structures. <laughs> Look, 
I got nothing. <laughs> I'm just gonna say, <laughs> I know you've got nothing. That's one of those. Okay, yeah, no, it's we've we've got Nick pinned. That's all <laughs> there needs to be said about it. And so, um, one thing that I kind of struggle with one of my players in particular is I don't want to be one of those GMs who traps people who does like Temple of Elemental Evil nonsense. You know, it's not sporting. I'm the one in charge of everything that happens. So there's no sport in me being like, ah, oh, surprise, you've done the one thing I thought you shouldn't. Now you die. Simultaneously, though, like, uh, I like the story and the challenge of dealing with a being with that level of power. And that's something I kind of, I'm not sure if I'm struggling with it more as a game designer or more as a GM, to be honest with you. Because so far, our other GM hasn't introduced uh, monsters. Yeah, so we'll see what happens with that. Nick, I, I want you to opine on this. Opine. So I really do like the noble demons. I think probably the most interesting thing to me is the fact that so far all of the ones we've encountered have been humanoid. While the lesser demons have been a variety of goofy things, everything from baguettes with wings to clones to the very naturalistic Benny, who has showed up in Kirsten's training wheels. But the noble demons have all been very human. Uh, the, what was it? The, was it the, the prince of sons? Who was the, the radiant, the prince. radiant prince. Yeah. The radiant prince yeah. was, was human looking, you know, with, with obviously the extravagant uh, cloak and the shining eyes. Uh, the duchess or the countess. Yeah, the Countess of the Silver River. Although you did fight the Emerald Duchess. Well, not fight, but you guys encountered the Emerald Duchess in the playtesting campaign. Yeah, we encountered the Emerald Duchess and, you know. She's in the book. Yeah. So so the noble demons are very human, and I think that is actually very interesting. The lesser demons have the feeling that they operate on sort of a more animalistic level. While they can be clever, they are largely, like, I wouldn't say that they don't have free will, but their free will is largely co-opted by a noble demon. Yeah, they don't have a ton of it. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, uh, the you've explicitly built a feudal structure into the noble and lesser demons here. So I wonder if there is not kind of just an element of, I mean, like, I know that you don't build your games to be explicitly political commentary, but um, something, something we we're just talking about power structures. Yeah. I think, though, first of all, we have crossed into a time where we can't not do political commentary, unfortunately. And fortunately, I think it's brought out a lot of good in a lot of people. But if you're going to make a place that is safe from these old colonial assumptions and is safe from these uh, like feudal power structures and glorification of power and wealth, you need to make it explicit that this is a place where these ideas no longer hold sway. Like, it's not enough to build a world that lacks these things. I think we're in an era right now where we need to build a world that's actively opposed to them. And so you're saying that you are explicitly painting this sort of rigid hierarchy, this sort of great man of history, this um, divine right as an explicitly malevolent force. Yeah. I think that it is um, a dangerous obsession that uh, doesn't really serve to benefit people. <laughs> and 
I think that's something I learned from um, actually a lot of the books, that, a lot of the RPG books I've been reading lately. Yeah, it was something that I realized that like you can't just have these things implicit anymore because status quo except there's magic is not a safe place <laughs> because status quo isn't. Mm -hmm. First of all, thematically, this is how demons are. If you read any old demonology or any, uh, any text on the subject, demons have always been very strictly ranked, partly because a lot of our demon lore comes from a time when people couldn't imagine anything else. <laughs> like, it comes from, like, the Renaissance and earlier. But nowadays, I think it's seen more as just, like, a token of just obsession and vanity. So while it's true to the quote-unquote source material, because it's, like, it's not my only source material, but it's a big one, it's also something that independently of the source material is just kind of um, bad. So that's my story about noble demons. <laughs> and I think uh, automatons are in there, and they're, they're basically physical horrors. They're the physical remnants of the last war. I don't think they're... Yeah, I guess that's sort of like one of the big things for me that I'm very interested in, even though we haven't really, I guess, explored that much of them, is I don't actually think that we've encountered an automaton yet in, in any of the games that I've actually played with you, Kat. In the original sort of like pre-podcast early playtesting, I think we encountered rundown automatons or like ruined automatons, but we didn't encounter any that were active or were still functioning. Obviously, in sort of symphonies, we've encountered the book that teaches you how to build at least one of them. I don't know how many are in that book because Cobb is not good at read nerd book. He's he's not good at read nerd book. This is true. No, it's not not something that he likes but there's at least one of them in there yep and in kirsten's training wheels obviously we are having a fun adventure that is more political in nature than i was actually kind of expecting from kirsten and i mean as somebody who's played a lot of games with kirsten kirsten has run a grand total of two sessions <laughs> one time on tuesday we ran honey heist and one time way back in the day we did a rotating gm silent hill game to bring things kind of around and so when it was Kirsten's turn, she ran a session, and that's it. That's the extent of uh, Kirsten's GMing. So I have been, I wouldn't say surprised, but I've been really delighted at how, how she's doing with um, with Kirsten's training wheels. That's, it's a blast. But it's Kirsten really fun to play. is a sucker for intrigue. <laughs> Kirsten's favorite genre of anything is the cozy mystery. Oh, yeah, which is exactly what we are like. Yeah. We are sort of confined to this, you know, I, I guess if we, like, left, she would probably have something for us. But we're very confined to this academy, which I've been having a lot of fun with, honestly, I think. Yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. I think the setting of this mystery at the academy is really cool. And, yeah, it's about the politics of this anthropology department, which... <laughs> I'm, yeah, it's so good. And I don't think... Did, did Kirsten, like, go to grad school or anything like that? Because this feels like we're getting some real inside baseball kind of like. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's the, admittedly, um, at first I was like, well, this is this is inside baseball because I know anthropology was one of Kirsten's favorite subjects in college. But, but I, as far as I know, no grad school, no. Like, when I first proposed this to Kirsten, it was, 
in the hopes that she could show people that you don't need to be afraid of being an inexperienced GM. And, and I mean, as a game designer, so that I could see what it's like in the hands of somebody who doesn't have a ton of GMing experience. And, but what I didn't realize was what Kirsten would do for this game was demonstrate that there are different kinds of stories you can tell. Because I very much like otherworldly horror. Mm-hmm. And so there's always an otherworldly horror bent to pretty much every story that we've done in Sword of Symphonies. There's something yeah. otherworldly or metaphysical because that's my wheelhouse. And so it has been incredible to see that, no, this game is capable of doing mysteries and doing intrigue and doing them pretty well. Um, so that has been fantastic. And I'm so, so glad. We're learning that the true monster was humanity all along. The true, man's, the, tr- the true monster was grad students. I think that it's pretty explicit in the Heroic Chord Manual that the true monster was man all along, personally, but... Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's on all the pages. It's on most of the pages. Yeah, it's just, it's... Even my long pre-ramble about how sad I am, it's like, it, it ends with P.S. <laughs> the real monster is man. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually down where you think that they're the, uh, the lower corners of the pages... If you look real close in the the sort of like leaf down there, it actually says the real monster was man all along in the in the margins. Just go look for it. You'll see it. Yeah, you'll find it. You can actually find the full text of No Exit by Sartre in the GMing appendices. <laughs> yeah, I figured no one else would ever read it, so I did just copy paste No Exit into there. Just scribble into the margins. Go look for it. <laughs> so is that what we have to say about monsters today? That's largely what we have to say about monsters. Um, monsters are cool. Monsters are cool. I just love them. And that's been something like, this is going to be kind of the first cat's cradle where I openly talk about the podcast I do with my asshole friends. Because, because um, one of the best things about playing Invisible Sun has been that you just get to kind of come up with whatever dumb crap you want. So I get to design a lot of monstrous things. Because I'm a summoner, and when I summon the things, I have to determine what they look like. Yay. So it hasn't come up recently, but uh, Only Rachel's Familiar looks kind of like a little sprite, but from the shoulders up, it is a bird's nest with three baby birds in it. That's actually pretty cool. That's awesome. That's Rachel's Familiar. Yeah, it's Kira. (laughs) Well, so now that we've sort of just laid a groundwork for Monstrous, the next Cat's Cradle I can uh, talk about Hélène Sissou and Desiring production. Ooh. Big production information coming at you not so live next time. You know what, though? Speaking of which, we've got a little time. I would really like to hear more about the horror sound design. Because, like, I come up with very spooky monsters and you guys do fights with very spooky monsters. And then I listen to the podcast, sometimes while meandering around my local museum looking at rocks, and I'm just kind of like really taken aback by the the soundscapes you've created for these creatures. So use your words right now to tell me all about them, please. Okay. I very much believe that the way to do a creative project is to sort of create a box for yourself so that you don't have your mind spin out into the stratosphere and not complete anything. Mm-hmm. So fairly early on, I decided that 
sort of for the music design, I wanted to have, if not light motifs, at least sort of a sense of this type of instrument was for this type of thing. Yeah, heavy motifs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In general, we have some like sort of basic things. The marimba is associated with Tissa and Tissa's magic. The acoustic guitar, or guitars in general to a degree, are associated with Penelope. We obviously have Cobb and his accordion. I use strings to carry emotion because that's kind of generally how strings work in orchestral writing, or at least writing for like movies and stuff. But um, for the horrors, I decided that I would make sounds for horrors based on sampled voices and electronic nonsense. Ooh. So the horrors uh, have a lot of synths in them. Particularly, there's a native instruments program that I like a lot that is uh, built on sampling. It's called Contour. I guess the reason that I settled on electronic music for the horrors and sort of synths is that the horrors are very intrinsically tied to humanity and the things that we've done. In a sense, every horror is an artificial creation, right? Mm-hmm. No, I, you know, you haven't explained it to me like that before, but you're absolutely right. And so to me, digital sounds are very, they're awesome. They're also extraordinarily artificial. A digital sound is something that is created entirely through human imagination. And so that kind of like harsh digital distortion, this kind of like strange morphings of sounds in a way that you can only do on computers, I thought was really appropriate for the horrors. No, I can I could totally hear that. I'm I'm thinking back to the first time I listened to the broadside fight and there was that distorted screaming that would kind of give way to accordions when Cobb cast his spell. Like it was uh that screaming was really kind of the moment where I realized just how much just how much my very good sound designer <laughs> was was capable of. Um, like, genuinely, genuinely, I was extremely blown away by that one. This, the fight with the blades, too. Yeah, the fight for the blades, I really doubled down a lot on, like, sort of character theme and that sort of stuff because I didn't want it to be spooky the entire time because I had the stupid idea that I was going to score straight through 40 minutes of us uh, fighting stuff. Yeah. And so I couldn't make it all intense the entire time because music doesn't work like that. It has to be tension and release. You can't just be tense the whole time. I mean, silly idea or not, it was very good. (laughs) (laughs) And then I guess the other sound design is that the demons are heavy metal, essentially. So they are associated with, I use some heavy metal vocal techniques. I use a lot of distorted guitars. Like some synths, some heavy synths, some distorted instruments. But I mean, like, it's cliche that demons are heavy metal, but like progressive metal is one of my loves, Mm. like in terms of aesthetics. And I guess if I'm going to justify it uh, thematically, an amplifier essentially, even when it's making very distorted, very unearthly sounds, is taking something that already exists on this planet and enhancing places that you wouldn't expect it to enhance. Mm. An electric guitar 
when it's played completely clean has that kind of weird sound um, that it has because of the way that electromagnetism works, but it still is ultimately a guitar. But when you throw that into a guitar amplifier, depending on what microphone you choose, what the speakers are, all of those sorts of things, you end up emphasizing these very strange parts of the sound, and it almost ends up... <sighs> Electric guitars have this really vocal quality, mm-hmm. partially because of amplification, um, that it excites a lot of places that we associate with vowels. And so it has this similar shape and contour to a human voice. And so I thought that that was a nice counterpart to Noble Demons, which are very much about, like, humanity's worst impulses. I'm trying very hard right now not to make strong bad jokes. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah, that's been been very, very good. It's been very good. I think I'm going to go back and listen to um, the fight with the left hand again because I remember uh, making, like, the metal of that uh, scene being very, very powerful and good. I've got a question for you, for you, known guitar enthusiast, Kathleen. So when you do electric guitar bits, do you do them with a meat space guitar? I do them with a meat space guitar. And this is also true of my acoustic guitar bits because I've got the microphone and the guitars to do that. Because I know that you, you often will use... Um, a soundboard for for instruments that you haven't got, but you are a known guitar enthusiast, so I was really <laughs> hoping you'd say yeah. Yeah. All of the guitars, I'm pretty sure, are live guitars. There you go. I think I've used four different guitars on the show. I've got Ooh. the eighth string that I was using for the rhythm stuff in the left hand fight. I've got another down-tuned guitar and a baritone guitar that I mixed in on the Radiant Prince, I've got the acoustic guitar, and I'm not sure whether I've used my Strat on this one or not, because I think I used, yeah, yeah, I think it's just the four guitars, but I've got another three that could potentially show up on the soundtrack at some point. So keep an ear out for them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, guys, Mm. now I feel like we've talked about all the spookiness. Hooray. Yeah. That's That's a lot of spookiness we've talked about. I mean, it's our Halloween spooktacular. Sort of Symphonies is still at its heart a very cozy vibe. But that doesn't mean that we can't also be spooky. Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Tissa's character arc was very much about earning, like, sort of self-knowledge through adversity. So, like, you've got to have that heaviness to make it work. Yeah, yeah we're, we're a jack-o'-lantern spice latte. Man, I, no, I I love pumpkin co- spice. I'm I'm we're, I'm that guy. We're cozy but still spooky. I'm that guy out there who's the one who they make all the pumpkin spice stuff for. It's me. I'm sorry, everybody. God, God. here's the look. Okay, look. When Nick comes over, I have to buy cream for coffee because I drink coffee black. Oh come on! You know I drink coffee black now. This is true. But I have in the past had to, also when Kirsten comes over. Mostly for Kirsten. Mostly for Kirsten. So the knowledge that you drink pumpkin spice. And the thing is, I don't even, like, I don't have the cartoonish objection to them that many extremely edgy people do. 
But I just don't like sweet drinks. <laughs> so I just, I personally find the Mickey. But. I love all forms of flavored drink. Bitter, sweet, sour. I don't, yeah. I haven't had salty drinks, but I'm same. sure they exist. Yeah, they do. You've been to Canada and you've had Caesars, my dude. Oh yeah, Caesars are technically salty drinks. Yeah, fair enough. Caesars are pretty good. <laughs> How dare you disrespect my culture like this? The Bloody Caesar has been one of Kat's go-to things since I have <laughs> known you two. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> this is just one of those cornerstone cat elements. <laughs> Caesar in one hand, book about witchcraft in the other. Let's roll some dice. Like... <laughs> Indeed. And let's roll some dice, you too, listener. Yeah, thanks for joining us this time. <laughs> Look, I didn't. I'm trying to be nice here. You're the one losing it. Like oh both of God. us tried real hard to like let that one go. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> let's roll some dice, us everyone. Where should they roll dice at us? They should roll dice at us um, in their hearts and in their feelings. And as they say in the good book, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. Which means if you play heroic chord with your friends, I want to hear about it as the, as your friend and as the designer. So please let me know. I think that's what was meant in the Bible. Anyway. Probably. We're on Twitter at Peach Garden RPGs, or you can visit our website either sort of symphonies.com or peachgardengames.com. I won't be able to tell which one you use. And uh, you can use the email form there to let us know how your experience was. Let us know what you found scariest in the podcast. I found the lack of body horror the scariest. The lack of body horror? Spooky. Oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. And have a happy Halloween! I have no idea when this episode's going live!